Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm Nathan Rubin. Before we begin, we want to dedicate today's podcast to everybody affected by Hurricane Harvey. The New York Times is reporting that there have been 38 confirmed deaths related to the storm, and that number continues to rise. No matter who you voted for, we want you to know that folks here at Millennial Politics are thinking of you. If you're listening and are in a position to donate, we hope that you'll consider giving 5 or $10 to charitable organizations like the Hurricane Harvey Relief Fund, the Houston Food Bank, the LGBTQ Disaster Relief Fund, or other local groups on the ground. In times like these, literally every dollar counts. On a lighter note, on the pod today, we're joined by serial entrepreneur and tech investor turned Democratic candidate for mayor of New York City, Mike Tolkien. Hey, Mike, how you doing today? Doing great. So good to be on your podcast. I appreciate you coming on today. I know you're a busy guy and you're running a campaign, so I think we should just go ahead and jump right in. You come from a background in tech, you founded and invested in startups, and now you've pivoted into politics. Can you tell us a little bit more about your personal journey from where you started to where you are today as a candidate for mayor? Sure. Uh, so I, I would just clarify one point. I don't really view myself as a politician, nor do I view myself as having uh, entered politics. I view myself as having entered government. And I think putting that frame on it will, will make a little bit more sense how I got from what I was doing to where I'm at today. Um, so as you said, I, I'm a tech entrepreneur, I'm an innovator. I create things out of nothing and I solve problems for a living. And um, so I've done that primarily through the private sector in terms of creating products and services, uh, new businesses that typically appeal to a consumer audience. And given everything that's going on in the world today, and particularly what's happening with our economy, where you have the rich getting richer, the poor getting, poor getting poorer, and, uh, and the middle class basically going away entirely, that is a recipe for disaster. It's not sustainable. Uh, and the worst part of it is that it's getting worse by the day. So uh, as I was thinking about my own role in all of this as a problem solver, as someone who has private sector experience, someone who's run a variety of organizations and has some visibility as to what the future economy looks like on the basis of some of the technological trends that I happen to see as part of my day-to-day -day, uh, job, I. I put on my, my uh, problem solving hat and applied it to municipal governance. And I started thinking through different policies, different approaches, different solutions to some of our biggest problems ranging from our mass transit system, uh, which obviously has been falling apart for decades, but really you know, reached a new level of disrepair this summer, um, to our healthcare system, to what we're doing to combat climate change, and most important, as I mentioned, restructuring our economy so that every single person in our city has the ability to pull in an, a meaningful income, afford to live in their own space, in their own neighborhood, uh, and and not have to worry about putting food on the table. Um, and so that's you know where all of this sort of came from. Over the past nine months, I've been doing a ton of research. Uh, on the ground, meeting with people, uh, sleeping on the, on the streets even to get a better understanding of our homelessness crisis on a much more nuanced level. Uh, and, and really um, just listening to the stories and struggles of everyday New Yorkers. And that's informed a, a comprehensive set of plans uh, that will address 
again, our crumbling infrastructure, our city services, which need to be upgraded, ranging from our street cleaning services to our community policing, to our uh, education system, and again, to economic development, job creation, and, uh, and, and fair income distribution. Awesome. During the campaign, there have been some, what I'll say, are minor hiccups with you bumping up against the New York City political establishment. There might have been an issue with you not being identified as a Democrat on the ballot, and more seriously and more recently, they either shut you out of the televised debate or you didn't qualify for the televised debate with Mayor Bill de Blasio. Can you tell our listeners what it's been like to campaign as an outsider and to challenge the status quo as a first-time candidate? Sure. Uh, you know, you, you sort of hit it on the head. I am an outsider. I'm not a politician. Um, I'm new to the campaign process. And uh, and so I approach this the way I would approach nearly anything, which is the way I know how as a startup. And so we structured our team to be like a startup. We don't have a campaign manager. I manage our own campaign. And the reason for that is I am a big fan of structuring your organization the way you anticipate governing in an office. Uh, as opposed to sort of just being a figurehead and, and being out there shaking hands and kissing babies, I think it's really important that I'm the one that's managing our organization, that I'm the one that's crafting our policies and our proposals with our team um, and, and really uh, uh, playing a very hands-on role. So um, as part of that, we have sort of challenged the assumptions of what it means to campaign in the modern age. We have a very heavy social media and digital presence, which is unusual, uh, a focus on content development and content marketing, meaning it's not just about writing a whole bunch of policies on a page, but now we need to bring that to life in a way that's easily digestible by every voter. So we've created a lot of video content, short form video content um, that distills down these complex policy ideas into bite-sized information. And then to the point you were making about the Board of Elections, where they gave us some, some trouble uh, about my Democratic uh, registration, we ended up challenging that and we won. So I'm, I'm running as a Democrat on the uh, Democratic ballot. And then more recently with the Campaign Finance Board, I qualified to participate in the debate per their guidelines. But because I didn't take public funds, because I bootstrap myself. Again, that's something that a startup does all the time. You, you put your own money in, you put your own resources in, and, and you, you make something out of nothing until you get to the point where you have something to sell, you have a vision to sell. And then at that point, you bring on third-party capital. We've applied the same thinking to our campaign. And because I, I did it that way and didn't spend my time fundraising over you know, the, the first nine months of our campaign, um, we were not automatically allowed to be a part of the debate. And so it was up to the media sponsors, New York One, WNYC, and some others to determine whether or not they wanted to include me in the debate, which they declined to do. So it's a pretty unprecedented situation where you have an individual who's funded their own campaign, built up a, a pretty robust platform, qualifies per the campaign finance board's uh, rules and regulations, and then a private media organization unilaterally uh, decides to, to keep us out. Um, that being said, you know, we're, we're now looking forward the past of the past, and it's really important that even though this was a big setback for us because the debates would have been a really great public forum for us to share our, our ideas and introduce our campaign to a broader set of people, um, it's really important that we you know, pick ourselves up, keep 
keep on uh, getting out there with our message. And I'm a big believer that the best ideas travel the fastest and the farthest. And we're seeing that play out. We have an incredible uh, number of supporters, over 150 volunteers, um, which is pretty uh, significant for a campaign of our size. And, um, and our message is resonating with people of all backgrounds and all boroughs. And that's, that's what keeps us you know, really excited uh, about the election on September 12th. I think we are poised to, uh, to, uh, to, to potentially uh, have an upset victory. I appreciate how you said that the various hurdles that you're facing were unprecedented, mainly because we haven't seen many candidates like you. And I think that's because there are a lot of barriers to entry to running for office. I think the cost of a campaign coupled with the opportunity cost of what folks could lose in terms of career growth and professional development is what prevents a lot of millennials from taking the leap into running for elected office. And coming from the private sector, I imagine you approach these costs with eyes wide open. How much did you originally anticipate spending in your bid to unseat Bill de Blasio, an incumbent mayor with name recognition? And did you find yourself having to modify your expectations as the campaign went on? Absolutely. Uh, like I said earlier, I sort of went in into this with uh, the, the best of intentions and the best of assumptions, meaning I, I didn't think that we were going to encounter any quote unquote corruption. Uh, and, and, um, and so many of the challenges that have presented themselves have been surprises. But again, we, as someone coming from the startup world, um, there are always surprises, there are always unexpected challenges. And that's part of being a problem solver, you can't just like our mission, obviously, uh, was first and foremost to craft a vision for the city that was exciting, that was ambitious, that that takes the best of New York to the next level in terms of the, uh, the the opportunities that we provide our people and the quality of life that we provide all New Yorkers. So that's first. Second is, how do we win? And we mapped out a, a clear path from you know being an unknown candidate to, to beating um, Mr. de Blasio in the primary. And then the third piece of it is, uh, all of the unknown challenges and those you sort of deal with as as they come. So in terms of your question about how much I was prepared to put into this and, uh, and, and the most notable surprises, certainly I did not anticipate putting in as much money as I have. I didn't think that would be a requirement. Turns out that you really do need a lot of money. And the reason for that is there are a whole bunch of legal and administrative hurdles that, uh, that you just need money to get around. I mean, by way of example, there's this archaic petition process where you need uh, 7,500 signatures to get on the ballot, which really means because candidates can challenge each other that you need north of 15,000 signatures. Um, so even though you may have a tremendous uh, uh, audience and, and, and base of support, you still have to go out there on the streets and get signatures. You can't do it digitally. You can't do it uh, you know, with, with the, the people in your immediate circle only. And there are a whole bunch of rules governing that. And so for every campaign, it ends up being not just an expense financially, but also an expense of time and resources where you could be uh, working on your platform, honing your message and getting out there in a more meaningful way. People end up spending a lot of their time um, just sort of running around the city 
and asking people to support their candidacy. And when you, you know, there's only so much time that you can spend with each of those people that are signing your petition. So while I'd love to spend, you know, 15, 20 minutes or, you know, an hour with each, with each voter to sort of explain our, our platform and how we're going to benefit them on a, on a, on an individual basis, um, you really have to move quickly because you need 15,000 signatures. So anyway, um, not to be super long winded about it, but there are a lot of challenges and all the more reason for tremendous reform. We need to be reforming our election process. We need to be reforming our institutions, departments, agencies, our rules for, uh, for running for office. We, with all the technology that exists today, with the broadcast platforms that we have online, with social media, um, we shouldn't need all this money to get our message out there. The system should, it should be redesigned in a way that anyone that has access to a computer, which should be everyone, uh, can throw their hat in the ring, create a plan, put together a team, and have a real shot at, at winning office. And if we democratize the process in that way, we're gonna start seeing much better results. I think young people and older people would love to play a more active role in, in governing if they had a viable path to doing so. And right now it's a black box. It's really expensive to, to hack that box open. And it's, uh, it's certainly there's an opportunity cost in terms of having to put your entire life on hold, your profession, your personal life um, to, to run for office. No doubt. I, I completely agree. And, and I think your point about democratizing it, it's so fascinating how we live in a democracy, but we make it very difficult to participate. And this kind of leads me to my next question. I looked up the campaign finance reports for this race. This is kind of what I do in my spare time. <laughs> and all of this is public data, so anybody can look this up. But I noticed that yours stuck out. You've given yourself millions of dollars in what are known as in-kind contributions. And correct me if I'm wrong, but for the folks at home, in-kind contributions are non-monetary or contributions other than cash. So this includes goods and services like computer hardware and software or anything that a person could provide. And most of the other candidates in the race don't have this same level of in-kind contributions as you. Can you explain what makes you different and how you arrived at the decision to file this way? Well, the first piece of it is that uh, candidates are not able to contribute uh, more than a, a certain limit if they are participating in the campaign finance program, which offers the opportunity to have um, a six to one or participate in a six to one matching program. Most candidates participate in that program because they either don't have the resources or the willingness to put in their own resources. And so going into this, I, as I said earlier, I take a scrappy approach, I bootstrap, I you know, certainly um, took, a, took on a bunch of financial risk to be able to um, spend most of my time preparing for office and not a bunch of time fundraising. Um, so that's the first part is that I had the opportunity to uh, contribute an unlimited amount. If you, you may recall, um, several years ago, uh, Mike Bloomberg had self-funded his campaigns and um, obviously well north of, of what I put into our campaign. Um, but bottom line is you have, you have the option as a candidate to either self-fund with an unlimited amount or cap yourself, but be able to participate in the matching program. Um, so that was the first piece of it. The second piece of it is um, the IRS, uh, you know, um, taxes people on any sort of value transfer. So coming from the startup world, I'm 
accustomed to this. You know, you have a startup that might be worth five million dollars um, on paper, and so if you if you sold that or if you if there's any sort of transaction, the IRS will look to that value to tax you. And uh, in the case of an in-kind contribution, we use the IRS guidelines to make sure that we're valuing my in-kind contribution of services and assets um, to, to the campaign appropriately. Uh, again, there's no real uh, benefit to contributing these assets and resources with a financial value other than to just be uh, compliant with the IRS and the campaign finance board. And so that's, that was how uh, that all came to be. We valued the assets on the basis of how we'd value any contribution to, a, uh, to any organization, um, which was a mix of looking at benchmarks, so comparable examples uh, that have been valued at a certain, at a certain uh, level, as well as uh, what we call a discounted cash flow model, where we project out cash flow and then discount back the net present value of those cash flows. And the reason why the, the latter uh, methodology was appropriate is because one of the in-kind contributions that I made was an actual business. Uh, it's called nyheartsu.com. And basically every dollar that's generated through that e-commerce site goes back to our campaign's League of Love, which is a, a human rights council that we're putting together. Um, it will fund a variety of human rights causes and organizations. So I contributed that whole business to the campaign and therefore we needed to value it on that basis. Got it. So it was essentially an asset transfer that you needed to report for IRS compliance and campaign compliance. Is that right? Correct. Got it. My next question has to do a little bit with your platform. On your website, there are references to public-private partnerships and even public-private business ventures that you say would be privately run in nature they would compete in the free market, but any profits that they make would go back to the city. I'm curious how you came up with the idea, why you think this is necessary, and realistically, what kind of time frame you're looking at for these new companies to turn a profit and begin to return money to the city. The way this all came to be, you know, as we were looking at some of the more um, comprehensive proposals for our mass transit system, uh, for uh, for healthcare, we're we're proposing the first ever single payer universal mental healthcare program to upgrading our city services. Um, these are are very expensive programs, and you know from one administration to another, the budget is essentially spoken for. There's not a lot of wiggle room. Maybe around the periphery, you can you know find some uh, some some opportunities to cut costs, or you can reprioritize certain. Uh, certain initiatives. Um, but unless you're going to raise taxes, it's really difficult to fund an entirely new program. And so given that it's basically a non-starter at this point to radically increase taxes, um, I, as a problem solver, sought a different solution. And you know, coming from the private sector, I know how to make money, I know how to create jobs, I know how to create businesses. And the idea was, all right, let's figure out a new way to fund government, to fund our various social welfare programs, to fund our various investments, which will ultimately lead to further economic growth. And that yielded what we call NYC Enterprises, which are for-profit companies, as you said, privately managed, privately financed, but every dollar in profit comes back to our city to fund our schools, our health programs, our parks, and so on. 
And again, it's, this is a, a very small scale example, but nyheartsview.com is, is an example of a business that was started in the private sector, is managed by the private sector, but every dollar in profit comes back to city programs. Um, so that's sort of a template in terms of how, how these kinds of businesses will, will look and operate. In terms of you know, which businesses we're gonna be starting and the time frame for implementing them, um, they're all on our site actually. So you can go to tolkienformayor.com and go to our plan. In our org chart, you can see a series of businesses ranging from NYC Studios, which will be our film and entertainment studio, uh, to NYC Research, which will be a series of uh, research institutes around high growth emerging areas like artificial intelligence, biotech, uh, quantum computing, and so on, to uh, an e-commerce platform that will help our small businesses transition uh, and leverage new e-commerce and delivery-based platforms to grow their businesses, uh, given that brick and mortar is becoming more challenging with, with real estate values being what they are, um, as well as you know, servicing the New York population in a much more uh, comprehensive and integrated way. So you know, having our own e-commerce site, again, it's, it's competing in the private sector, so it's not going to displace or replace the private sector, but every dollar in profit will come back to our city to fund our various programs and initiatives. So I, I think this is a brilliant idea. We haven't really seen anyone propose this, especially in New York before. And I'm a big fan of the idea of corporate citizenship. You have companies that have offices here, headquarters here, they turn a profit here. And in my mind, they have an obligation to give back in some capacity to the city. But coming from the private sector, you know that companies take time to assemble. They take time to find product market fit. They take time to generate revenue and ultimately turn a profit. And most startups actually fail. So why is NYC Enterprises a good idea for the private sector? Why would they provide seed money when they'll never see a nickel in return if all the profits go to the city? And there's a sizable risk that these ventures might eventually fail anyway. That is accurate that you know, it, it's a, any new business has risks associated with it. Um, that being said, we, we have some real competitive advantages um, given that these are for public for-profit companies and benefit the people they aim to serve from a financial perspective and a, and a city services perspective, um, we have 8.5 million New Yorkers that are going to be hyper loyal customers. So there is a, an, an initial rationale for these businesses to exist uh, and, and to, to uh, perform well. Um, the second piece of it is that this is a diversified approach. There isn't any one business, just like if you were running a private equity company or, or venture capital firm, you wouldn't fund one business exclusively. You take a diversified approach. There will be winners, there will be losers, but in aggregate, um, you wanna make sure that you're, you're winning more times than you're losing or you're winning um, uh, more significantly than you're losing. Um, the third piece of it is in terms of uh, external capital funding these initiatives, we're, we'll be looking at a variety of debt instruments. So um, there will be uh, uh, a, a, the potential for private sector individuals and, and corporations to, uh, to fund with some level of a return on their investment um, in the form of, of debt. Uh, and over time, as our companies are, are generating 
uh, sufficient cash flow to not only fund our various city programs, but to fund themselves with reinvestment, just like uh, you, you see large public companies ranging from Apple to Facebook to Amazon to Google, where they're generating sufficient cash flow at this point that they don't need to turn to the private sector to, uh, to raise incremental capital, they can fund their own initiatives themselves. So if I'm understanding correctly, just to dive a little bit deeper into that, potentially private sector individuals or companies would help start these organizations, NYC enterprises, and over a period of time, they would be returned their investment, their upfront seed capital through some sort of debt structuring. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Cool. Uh, we're, we're also, just to expand on that, we're also exploring a variety of public-private partnerships, uh, like you were saying about uh, corporate citizenry and this notion of, of social corporate responsibility. Um, there are a few other avenues for us to generate seed capital, including grant funding. Got it. You mentioned your tactics and methods of really being digital first and heavy on content marketing. I personally really enjoy your digital video ads. I think they are extremely well done and they certainly differentiated you from your competitors. Have you found that they've been effective and what KPIs do you use to measure their effectiveness? Um, so the short answer is yes, they're, they're really effective and, um, and, and we're seeing a lot of anecdotal evidence of that where, you know, as I said, over 150 volunteers, people are consistently writing in to, uh, to us about how excited they are and for the first time ever, they, they feel like their voice is heard and they can get, uh, can get involved and, and that they see a path toward the future that they can believe in. And so that, you know, from that standpoint, I think we can say that these videos are able to not only communicate policy ideas, but to capture a vision in a much more uh, a comprehensive way that people can really wrap their heads around what we plan on doing. And even more important than that, how our plans benefit you on an individual basis. That's, you know, our videos speak to you on, a, on an individual basis. Um, in terms of the KPIs and whatnot, we look at a variety of different metrics across social, across digital. Um, you know, we have uh, tens of thousands of engagements and, uh, you know, on a monthly basis, about a million impressions. Um, so we're, we're doing well in terms of exposure and engagement. But in order for us to go from where we are today to winning the primary on September 12th, we need to scale our message. And so for the next uh, two weeks, we will be very actively promoting our content through a variety of different channels. Um, leveraging our initial uh, uh, support base and support network to expand and scale our message um, and ultimately leverage earned media as well, uh, press and, and, and traditional media to amplify our message to people that may not be on Facebook or may not be super digitally plugged in. Got it. Honestly, to me, you sound super sharp. You're thinking outside the box. And I think these types of attributes are exactly what we need in our elected officials. But more importantly, in my mind, we also need folks who have moral courage and can lead a city like ours through the tumultuous times we live in. So we're witnessing the LGBTQ community under attack at the federal level, and Republicans around the country are still obsessing over rolling back reproductive rights. So as mayor, how would you protect the fundamental human rights of all those who live in New York City? So the, the first point 
which you mentioned up front, is I think it's about having a really strong moral constitution as an individual. And it's something that I, I do pride myself on. I, I've been raised with really uh, uh, important values uh, to do the right thing, to treat people the way you want to be treated, really basic things. Um, but unfortunately, those seem to get thrown out the window when you enter the political realm. And given that I'm not a politician, I can say with 100% with certainty that I will stay true to those values and treat everyone with the respect and the dignity that they deserve. Um, but in terms of how that translates to specific initiatives, um, we have a program called the League of Love, which is a human rights council. Uh, we will be bringing together organizations, rights organizations from across the country and around the world uh, to be much more unified, coordinated with our various agendas and approaches. And uh, ultimately, this alliance will not only have the resources that they need to, um, to coordinate amongst themselves, but will have a direct line to the mayor's office so that they can help us shape and implement our ambitious human rights agenda. Unfortunately, we're living through a time where we don't know what challenges are, are going to come our way. Certainly, there are a lot of things that have come up recently that I never thought I would have to experience or defend against in my lifetime. Um, as somebody who's a member of the LGBTQ community, I'm particularly sensitive to you know, what, the, the rhetoric that we're hearing and the very specific, concrete, uh, discriminatory policies coming out of D.C., uh, toward that, that group of people. You know, obviously there are a variety of human rights challenges, um, but when you have the president saying that he's gonna ban trans people from serving in our military, that sends a really awful message to our country, but more important than anything else, it sends a really terrible message to our kids. There are kids out there who have been born into a body they feel is not their own, who were born into a gender that they feel is uh, is incorrect and, um, and who are struggling the silent struggle. And they see their president saying with, you know, very clear rhetoric that they don't have a place in this world. And that is the most upsetting part of all of this and, and something that our administration will, uh, will attack head on. I want every child in our city, I want every person in our city to know, regardless of your background, regardless of, uh, of, of, your, uh, of your gender or your uh, sexual identity or the color of your skin, that not only are you loved, but we will do everything in our power to make sure that you are protected and are given the same opportunities as anyone else to go and pursue your happiness and to live a fulfilling life. Uh, and to that end, our NY Hearts You campaign is all about this notion of New York City being a sanctuary city, a safe place, not just for our immigrant commu communities, but for anyone who chooses to call New York home. And, uh, and that's a really important message that we will continue, not just throughout the campaign, but uh, once we're in office. This kind of transitions well into criminal justice, and your website touches on criminal justice reform. You have material there, and I recall seeing an ad of yours calling for the legalization of marijuana. Obviously, marijuana laws contribute heavily to racial profiling of minorities, and stop and frisk has been ruled unconstitutional. Can you talk a bit about how these items 
will impact your vision for New York becoming a leader in the criminal justice reform space? Just to, to delve into that first point about marijuana legalization, it's something that we've prioritized, not because it's the most important issue, but because it is a, a matter of common sense. Uh, obviously, other states are and have legalized marijuana. And so unless we're going to have our own border security patrolling for drugs coming in over the border, it is by default now legal. Marijuana is legal in, in New York um, because we're not we're not um, checking for it. And so once it's here, either we are going to profit from it economically, we, we're going to cultivate new uh, businesses around cannabis research, cannabis distribution, and so on and so forth, or we're going to spend a whole lot of time and resources regulating and policing it, which is what we do today. But it's only going to get worse because now that it's legal in other areas in the United States, we're going to see more drug product coming over the border. So as you look at the, the situation um, through that lens, either you spend a lot more money and throw kids unnecessarily in jail, or you uh, regulate and, and, uh, and profit economically, I would much rather go down the path of the latter. I agree, and, and I totally see eye to eye with you there. Like you mentioned earlier, the Democratic primary is right around the corner. It's on September 12th. Should you lose in the upcoming primary, do you see yourself trying to make a run in the general election as an independent, or do you see yourself returning to your life as a private citizen? Well, it's interesting you bring that up. To run as an independent, you need to go through the petition process all over again, and that that finished last week. Um, August 22nd was the cutoff date to file petitions to have a third party. That being said, we actually did that. So I... Um, I created a, an additional line on the general election ballot called smart cities. So regardless of what happens in the primary, we will be in the general election. Uh, that being said, right now, my focus is on winning the primary uh, as a Democrat. Can you talk a little bit more about the smart cities concept? Sure. I, I would sort of characterize our entire platform as the smart cities platform. And the idea behind that is that we are going to integrate private sector best practices, innovation, technology, into every aspect of our governance system. So we're gonna modernize our government, we're going to grow our economy, we're gonna upgrade city services and infrastructure, and most important, we're going to fairly distribute income. So, uh, as I said, smarter investments in new industries to create new job opportunities, smarter support and protections for small businesses, smarter uh, garbage collection uh, through new garbage collection equipment, smarter education by restructuring our curricula and even the schools themselves to uh, prepare our kids for future jobs, smarter health programs that reduce costs through preventative care, uh, and, and so on. So really upgrading our systems, our infrastructure, and our services to make sure that we are serving our people. And so to, to sort of sum it up, we are redesigning the city around you as an individual. You know, you should know every single one of your city services, where to find them, how to interact with them. You should be able uh, to, to uh, keep your government accountable and to have visibility as to what we're all doing uh, in City Hall. And, um, and so that's, uh, that's what we plan on doing over the next four and eight years. 
Awesome. I, I totally agree with you that with the technology that we have available, uh, we could certainly be doing things very differently. One of my favorite quotes is from Teddy Roosevelt, who said something along the lines of, it's not the critic who counts. Instead, our credit should go to the man in the arena. Win or lose on primary day, Mike, I'm really glad to see you in the race. Before we wrap, how can our listeners look you up, find your campaign, get involved if they wanted to? The easiest is to go to TolkienForMayor.com. From there, you can check out our, our content, our Facebook and, and other social media uh, pages. And, um, and of course, most important, we want to hear your voices. So please, please, please come to our site, enter uh, you know, your personal story, your struggles, your frustrations, uh, because that's how we inform our plans and make sure that we are addressing them. Awesome. Thanks again, Mike. And thanks for listening, everyone. Just a reminder, you can find us online by Googling Millennial Politics or by going directly to our website at millennialpolitics.co. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter, subscribe to our podcast and iTunes, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Politics. That's M-I-L-L-E-N politics. Again, I'm Nathan Rubin, and I hope you'll continue this conversation with me on Twitter at Nathan H. Rubin. That's all for now. Take care.